Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Hey everyone, welcome to episode number 147 of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you everything you need to know from the past week in the world of financial markets and financial planning. So this week, uh, as you all can see who are uh, watching on YouTube, uh, my guest this week is Nick Whitaker, who is our Director of Research and Trading here at Jessup Wealth Management. So he's going to be filling in for Matt once again. So welcome back, Nick. Good to be back, yeah, as always. Good to have you. Good to have you. Um, I'm going to keep our normal schedule here, and uh, before we begin to get into a few items, as always, we'll just take the first few minutes to recap the performance for the month and the year of the major indexes that we track, and these numbers are as of the market close on April 25th, and this data is from Coifin. S&P 500 index is down 5.17% for the month and down 9.86% for the year. The Dow down 1.81% for the month and down 6.3% for the year. The NASDAQ Composite Index down 8.55% for the month and down 16.88% for the year. The IWM ETF that tracks the Russell 2000 Index is down 5.56% for the month and down 12.86% for the year. Vanguard International ETF X United States down 5.3% for the month and down almost 11% for the year. Three-month T-bill yielding 0.87%, the two-year Treasury yield sitting at 2.56%, and the 10-year Treasury yield at 2.77%. Um, so moving on to big uh, news or headlines, current events from the previous week, Nick. Um, obviously, it was a rough ending to last week, and stocks sold sold off pretty good um, on Thursday and Friday with a little bit of an uptick or a large uptick in volatility, I should say. And a lot of people are attributing that to uh, the Fed Chair Powell signaling that a half uh, percentage rate hike is on the table for May to help kind of tame inflation. So again, a lot of moving parts and things going on right now. A lot um, of moving parts. Yeah, a lot of moving <laughs> parts. You know, we are seeing signs of inflation start to uh, decelerate. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, shipping costs have gone down. Um, used car prices have gone down. Um, so we are starting to see um, some stuff also in the producer price index, um, like plastics and metals, uh, the price of those uh, materials starting to come down. But, you know, we also still have the, the Russia-Ukraine crisis going on right now, and that's not helping things. Tightness and in the oil markets. Tightness in the oil markets, um, shutdown in, shutdowns in China, mm-hmm. um, for example. So, you know, they're not using as much energy um, right now because, you know, there are pretty severe lockdowns in some parts of China. Um, so I'm just wondering how that's going to have an effect on this recovery from, you know, supply chain disruptions and inflation, because I think, you know, if we didn't have uh, Russia-Ukraine crisis going on and if China wasn't shut down, I think things would seem to be on the road to recovery. But 
as there always is at any point during market cycles, there's always things going on that uh, yeah. is not going to make everything perfect. Yeah, and it seems like there's there's almost two different narratives, right? I mean, because you have the market narrative. Obviously, the market's had a lot of weakness over the past mm -hmm. couple months. Yeah. But then we're talking about the economy and, oh, things are recovering, but the market's going down. And, right. and so there's these two different narratives where everyone's kind of watching almost the tail of the tape from the market perspective, but also all the positives and different parts of the economy in, in line with, or I shouldn't say in line with, but, uh, you know, stacked up against all these different risks, the volatility, right. the, the fed rate hikes, uh, China shutdown, et cetera, all the stuff you just went through. So interesting times. Yeah. Very interesting times. So, um, you have a few points you want to make before we move on to tweets, articles and research from the yeah, week. So, so I have one item for listeners under the, the major headlines and current events that they've probably read some about, um, which is the global growth slowdown. There's been a number of articles. I saw one on Wall Street Journal last week on the 22nd. It was titled Global Growth, uh, Global Growth Outlook Ebbs in Face of Ukraine War, China Slowdown. Some of the things you were just talking about. Um, and then this is really coming on the heels of the IMF report on, on the 19th of April, which forecasted global growth um, decelerating. Uh, so I'll read that line from the IMF report, and that's that's where a lot of these headlines are coming from. It's from the, from the IMF and, and their projections. So the, the quote is, global growth is projected to slow from an estimated 6.1% in 2021 to 3.6% in 2022. Um, so that's a 0.8% uh, percentage point lower for 2022. So they're bringing that projection down. My two cents on this and what I would urge listeners to think about when they read these headlines is not to panic. Just because we're, we're decreasing our growth rate or, or the IMF is decreasing its growth rate expectations doesn't mean everything is going to blow up. Mm -hmm. We live in a, a massive global economy, some areas of the market, some areas of of world economics are going to do better than others. Um, and so that's, that's a tough job that the IMF has, where you look at the whole world and you project the growth rate, right? right. There are so many different variables. So a lot of headlines about this. I just urge listeners to just take a deep breath, realize that there are, there are going to be pockets of weakness in every type of economic recovery, economic, economic cycle. You know, when the U S might be doing great and our growth is, you know, skyrocketing relative to historical metrics other countries are doing very poorly mm -hmm. it will always be like that there will always be some ebb and flow there so. yeah and another thing to i think to remind listeners about is it's just that right it's a forecast <laughs> and i'm sure that most economists the international monetary fund and everybody else that makes these forecasts didn't have COVID on their bingo card going into forecasts for 2020 and 2021. Exactly. Um, so, and that can, that can happen on both ends of it, right? It could, there could be some black swan event that mm -hmm. negatively affects markets, or there could be an event or a non-event that is expected to happen that is a positive or a tailwind for markets. So mm -hmm. again, just take this stuff with a grain of salt. Um, these, these media reports are, they're paid to get your eyeballs on this stuff, right? And to yeah. make you want to read it. So it's always, in my opinion, going to sound a little more harsh than it actually is. They want the shock value. They want the sure. shock factor, yeah. for sure. Yeah. So 
Um, moving on to tweets, articles, and research from this week. The first uh, thing I had was a tweet from our friend Ryan Dietrich on April 19th. And uh, listeners are probably sick of us talking about this, but another stat on the AAII uh, sentiment survey. Again, this is a uh, sentiment survey that people can answer if they are uh, bearish, uh, bullish, or uh, neutral. Okay. So uh, he tweeted this chart of every time the amount of bulls was less than 20%. So typically, I mean, this survey indicates that on average, the people are bullish or the majority of respondents, uh, the bullish camp represents about a 35 to 40 percent of that camp. So uh, the bullishness dropping below 20 percent is pretty rare and has only happened uh, 31 times uh, across history going back to 1988. So from 1988 to 2022, uh, 30 out of the 31 times that bullishness dropped below 20%, um, six and 12 months down the road, the S&P 500 was actually significantly higher. So the average return six months from the initial less than 20% reading uh, about 12.6% on average. And then 12 months down the road, the average return was closer to 20%. So um, again, like Ryan said, you could argue that this is a, a pretty small sample size, but um, it's pretty impressive to look look at this chart. So we'll have uh, Jenna throw this up uh, on the YouTube video uh, for people that are watching, or you could go find this at our show notes, uh, Jessup Wealth Management on Facebook and LinkedIn or at Jessup Wealth on Twitter. So um, any comments here, Nick? Yeah, my, my main comment is this type of research is, is always interesting to me, and most of the time it, it doesn't surprise me, and here's why it doesn't surprise me. When, when you have what we were talking about earlier, when you have these, these two different areas that everyone's watching, the actual fundamental economic recovery and the stock market performance. So you have all these variables and when you have the market and market participants so bearish it, it just doesn't shock me that that that's where the risk is if mm. everyone's so bearish that that inherently that's telling you something right which right. which is what these stats are telling you so it doesn't surprise me to see that as these bearish numbers creep up your opportunities for for more gains right long-term rates of returns go up go up yeah, yeah. exactly Risk reward right? right exactly and it's just another way of saying you know what i think it was warren buffett who who quoted it is when when there's blood in the streets that's the time to buy right exactly um, yeah. because forward rates of return tend to be pretty good longer term um and again just as a reminder i think we talked about this last week this is just a survey this is not people saying how they're positioned in their portfolio. Right. And as we both know, what people respond to or talk about in the media uh, and how they feel about things is very different from how their investment portfolios look. Yeah, sure. You're not going to go and, and shop your portfolio. <laughs> right. Most of the guys on the talk shows aren't going to do that. Or they'll shop it in a little bit of a different way and yeah. they'll really be doing something different behind the scenes. Right, exactly. Yeah. So just wanted to point that out. 
Yeah. Uh, next thing I had was a snippet from a blog post written by Ben Carlson on April 19th titled Four Reasons the Housing Market Won't Crash. Um, so Ben states a couple of the obvious factors that you probably would think about, such as like supply remaining low, um, millennials becoming the largest group of homeowners and consumer balance sheets remaining strong. However, I wanted to kind of hone in on one of the points he made uh, in regards to no one wanting to sell. OK, so he says, according to housing expert Logan Mohatashami. I know I just butchered that name, That's but I apologize. Um, people lived in their homes for an average of five years between 87 and 2007. But then since 2008, that average has now doubled to 10 years. People are staying in their homes longer and for good reason. The Census Bureau also shares historical data on the makeup of new housing units in the U.S. over time. In 1973, the median new home being built had around 1,500 square feet of space. Just 23% of new houses had four bedrooms or more. The households had an average of three people living in them. Two out of every five houses were built with one and a half bathrooms or fewer. Today, the new average, uh, excuse me, the average of new homes has close to 2,500 square feet. Half of them have four bedrooms or more, and just 4% of them come with fewer than one and a half bathrooms. The average number of people living under one roof has dropped from three to two and a half. Half of all new homes built in 1973 came with no air conditioning, which is kind of wild to think about today. Especially for all any, any Southerners that are listening. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> such as yourself. Uh, houses today are bigger, better, and have fewer people living in them together. It's no wonder people are staying put. Then you have the fact that mortgage rates have touched generational lows during the pandemic, with housing prices rising at a fast clip and a low cost to service the debt. It's no wonder why people don't want to move as much as they did in the past. And I think that last point, Nick, is what people should be paying attention to. So even with the rapid rise in home prices since the pandemic, why would people want to sell their home when they're paying, let's say, sub three and a half percent interest rates on their mortgage, when now if they sell their home and buy a new house, they're going to be paying greater than five percent. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, this is something that could be potentially overlooked by a lot of people. And if you sell now, you know, your mortgage is going to be most likely more expensive uh, unless you're paying you know, Unless cash you, or you're significantly downsizing or you downsize. Yeah. yeah. Significantly. Yeah. Massively. Right. Yeah. Cause we were just, yeah. me and you were talking about it yesterday. We were going over stats about what, you know, mortgage payments were for certain, mm -hmm. uh, priced homes. And it was, you know, significant difference based on the interest rate. So I think Nick, or excuse me, uh, Ben makes some, some good points here. Um, again, anything can happen here, but, um, we do see more supply coming onto the market right now. So uh, that could have an effect on things as well. Um, but just kind of interesting thing to go through because, you know, if you sell your house and you make out uh, like a bandit on it, that's great, but you still have to live somewhere. Right. Yep. And I think that's, you that's gotta, the thing that gets missed gotta, by a lot of people. You got to turn around and, and do it again. <laughs> right. Exactly. I, I uh, you know, having moving, moved up here from North Carolina, I lived this exact thing firsthand where, it's, you know, you sell the house and 
you're feeling great and then the next day you're thinking oh well crap no. <laughs> <laughs> now you gotta figure out where to go figure out how, how i'm gonna do this so. right so yeah, it's it's tough it, it creates a lot of it's it's understanding it's understandable why there's so much tightness in in the housing market i think this there's there's a lot of great points in, in this article yeah and um, i think eventually Yes, housing prices will come down. Uh, it's anyone's best guess as to when that's going to happen. But I just want to remind people, it doesn't necessarily have to crash like they yeah. did in 07 I was and 08. Gonna, I was going to ask you about that because there's a lot of, I've seen some articles about it and I've had multiple people just in my personal life ask me about it. Like, what's going on with the housing market? Is it going to crash? And my response is, I'm, ne- I'm not expecting a 2008 housing crash prices might pull back a little bit Mm -hmm. as your supply and demand kind of evens out and maybe millennials slow down on their home purchases, et cetera. But I don't expect a crash. I mean, what what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I just think it's a completely different situation than it was in 07 and 08. I mean, you literally had, you know, uh, lenders giving loans that they had no business giving to these people that were applying for the loans and that were getting them. Um, You know, and I think at, at that point, there were several uh, functioning issues with the financial system, and that was that was one of them. People yeah, were getting sure. loans that they shouldn't have. Um, but now you have the flip side of that, where you know lenders are giving loans to like all-time high credit scores at this mm-hmm. point, and uh, consumer balance sheets are more clean. Uh, the stimulus from the pandemic had helped people get out of some debt or increase their financial position, increase their saving rate. Yep. So again, well, yes, I, I can almost use the G word of at some point housing prices will come in, but it doesn't necessarily have to be a crash. I've just, I just know that I've talked to people that are like, oh, I'm going to wait until housing prices crash. And it's like, you might be waiting might. a long time or <laughs> might you, be waiting a while. you know, so I don't, I, I'm in that camp as well. I don't. And again, my opinion is just as good as anybody else's, but yes, housing prices will fall at some point, but, um, I don't think it's going to look or feel anything like to what happened in, in the housing crisis in 07 and 08. Yeah. I think, I think my advice to people who are living this now and having to decide, do I buy, do I sell? To the point of this article, I think if you're going to buy, you really need to look at your, does it, does it make sense for your life right now? Is it affordable? And can you stay in that house for a couple years? Mm -hmm. Because that's where you'll get into trouble as if you buy with the intention of, oh, we'll probably sell it in two years. Well, the housing market could be down a little bit, down five, 10%. I mean, who knows? It could be more, it could be less, it could be up. Right. But that's where I think everyone just has to take that decision on a, on a personal financial and lifestyle basis. Maybe you don't want to live in an apartment for two more years. Mm -hmm. Um, and if you can afford it, then, you know, yes, rates are higher than they were six months ago, but is it better than living in the apartment? Right, exactly. And that's the thing that I think usually gets lost in translation for people is they look at housing as just purely an investment, right. And from a dollars and cents aspect of it. And it's like, listen, you know, even more important to me is for you to be in a place where you're happy, where you live, you, how much you gotta gotta spend (laughs) more than 50% of your time at your house or your or your apartments. You Mm -hmm. have to be happy where you are, right? You don't want to be miserable for five years living in a place you don't want to live. So waiting waiting for a housing crash that might not come, might not come. Exactly. So I think, you know, it's important to, you know, look at your family situation, 
look at your uh, employment situation um, and just figure out what works best for you and your family. So obviously the dollars and cents matter, but you have to take that out of the equation sometimes Mm -hmm. and look at it on an emotional basis. Yeah. What else you got for us? Uh, Lastly, before I hand it over to you, it was a blog post from Jeff Hirsch on April 21st titled May is the second worst S&P 500 month in midterm election years for everybody. So everyone who (laughs) says me and Matt are uh, permables, uh, I wanted to throw this in here and just let everybody know that typically in midterm election years, May tends to be pretty weak for the major indexes. Um, So since the 1950 midterm year, May ranks uh, very poorly. So it's the third worst month for the Dow the second worst month for the S&P 500. And not one of these indexes has been positive more than 50% of the time in midterm years. So average uh, midterm year May performance for the Dow Jones index uh, down a little more than half of a percent. And the S&P 500 average return is down about 0.7%. So again, looking back at seasonality um you know the way i use seasonality is it's not a indicator that i use to increase equity exposure or decrease equity exposure but just looking back over you know at least 30 40 50 years of data on how these months have performed especially during midterm elections if months divert significantly from their seasonal historical performance that's information. And then mm-hmm. that could give us information to be like, okay, so why why is it so different this time mm-hmm. compared to the historical average? So that's how I use it. But really, for the purposes of this podcast, just letting people know that we are in a midterm year. The market has been weak. The trend is down right now. So it wouldn't shock me to mm-hmm. see more weakness in May. Um, so just wanted to throw that out there for people. I know we've had a a pretty weak April so far, but, Mm -hmm. um, there could be more weakness ahead. Uh, again, midterm years don't tend to perk up or see strength tour until, you know, kind of late summer, early fall. Um, so again, wouldn't shock me if, if May wasn't a great month either. Yeah. And yeah, we'll, we'll see. One thing that will be interesting with with this year is just because April was so weak and we're in the middle of earnings season, who knows? Um, but yeah, the seasonality things are always, always interesting. It provides a little bit of perspective and understanding, um, for, Again, in, for investors. Yeah. It's just a data point. It's not something that you, you hang your hat on and say, Oh, historically, you know, May is weak. So I'm going to go to cash for the month of May. It's like, we don't do that for obvious reasons. Right. Um, but you know, so I uh, just thought that was interesting. But mm-hmm. I will turn it over to you for an update on earnings season. Yeah, I got I got a couple quick ones for listeners. Uh, we're in the middle of earnings season right now. Um, it's it's going to start coming in hot and heavy with some big tech earnings uh, this week and next. So this first one is a tweet from Factset on four twenty two, and uh, the the line is seventy nine percent of S and P companies have beaten EPS estimates to date for Q1, which is above the five-year average of 77%. Okay, so 79% of companies that have reported thus far in the earnings cycle, which is we're still in the very beginning part mm-hmm. of the earnings, earnings season, 
have beaten EPS estimate, which is above our five-year average. That's what that's saying. Okay. Um, what does that mean for listeners? That means that going back to what we talked about earlier, which I keep referencing, but it's just to kind of hammer this point home, the reality between the fundamentals and the economy and what's happening in the market are two different things. The market's forward-looking and is looking at all these risks and it's trying to price in all these li- risks constantly. But we see these earnings coming out and thus far, there have been a couple big misses. Yes, there always will be big misses in, in the earnings season. But on on the up and up, 79% beating, that's good. That's a good number. Right. If that number were to hold throughout the earnings season, that would be a great show of strength for corporate America. So yeah, thus absolutely. far, it's been, it's been a pretty strong season. Yeah, I agree. And you know, going back to what me and you were talking about uh, yesterday a little bit, just between the two of us, you know, these, these companies are still growing top and bottom line. Um, mm-hmm. They are still profitable. It's not like this is a situation where earnings reports are, are falling off a cliff. Yeah. You know, if that was happening, that would be like, okay, there's this little much there's more going, going on. Yeah. <laughs> that Corporate America is not falling apart. Right, right exactly. <laughs> so I think, again, bringing it back to the fundamentals and weeding out all of the media noise, you know, things in relation to the profitability and the success of these publicly traded companies, they're not as bad as the media is out making it out to look right. like. So Right. So that leads me into my next my next tweet. So these are just a couple quick ones for you. So the next one is an update on valuations. Uh, this is also from FactSet. I try not to do that, but these are two really good ones that I thought listeners would like. So this is also from FactSet. It's a simple little chart of the S&P 500 trailing 12-month P.E. ratio. Now, can, you, can you talk about the, what the P.E. ratio is a little bit, just if listeners sure. aren't very sure of it? Sure. The, so the P.E. ratio is just the price to earnings. So it's just taking your price over your earnings per share. And it's, it's a way that you can look at stocks and, and you'll hear the word valuation and, and understand what's that value you're getting. They produce X amount of profit over the price of the stock. Right. Right. So what that means, I guess, in English terms is, you know, uh, obviously, if the price is very high and the earnings are low, that's going to be a high price to earnings ratio, which people say, right, which people would say that's overvalued, overvalued, or you're trading at a premium, right? You'll hear all those kind of words, all those finance buzzwords, the jargon words just means the stock's really expensive, right? Right. Versus inexpensive, a low PE is going to be an inexpensive stock, high PE, um, vice versa. Okay. Um, so that's what this chart is showing. And if listeners will remember back in, in kind of the beginning of the year and, and particularly the end of 2021, there was a lot going on in the media about, oh, market valuations have gotten out of control. And, you know, we're, the S&P is trading in, in on the whole of upper 30s of the P.E. ratio. And there was a lot of talk about that. And that's why I brought this chart up. The, the quote in the tweet said the trailing 12 month P.E. ratio for the S&P 500 of 21.4 is below the five-year average of 23.1, but above the 10-year average of 20.2. That's getting a little bit in the weeds, but if you look at this chart, it shows what I'm trying to talk about here, which is that the difference in the market reaction and what's going on in the economy. The market was all worried about valuations at the end of 2021, all these risks, the market sells off, these valuations have come back into a very normal range, a right. very normal range. 
Especially um, for these higher growth names. Exactly. For the higher growth names, for certain areas in the market that have been beat up um, relative to areas like energy, for example. But when you, when you take this chart, when you take the chart on earnings, when you take your bullish sentiment chart that we looked at earlier, it kind of brings this nice picture together. You've got this big sell-off in the market. You've got valuations coming down. Um, you know, people, I've been asked this a couple of times over the past couple of weeks and about how I feel about the markets and I feel okay. You know, mm-hmm. I, I look at these charts, I look at where we are, I look at corporate earnings and, and I feel pretty calm actually relative to what the headlines say. Yeah, I do what too. Do and I think that that just goes back to show you that this is, this is how the market works. I guarantee you, if you go back to market sell-offs, you're going to see similar things, maybe mm-hmm. not exactly the same, but as I always like to say, um, history always rhymes, right? You can look back and kind of gain some things looking oh, yeah. back at history and, you know, this is another chart that just makes sense to me. You have so mm-hmm. much fear out there in the market. There's a bunch of media headlines that people are, are going crazy about. People are going crazy about politics. We're in a midterm year. Who, who's the president right now? Mm-hmm. You know, we have a, a war going on. We have high inflation. The Fed's raising interest rates to highest levels we've seen in a couple of years. Supply and then you look, chain concerns. Supply <laughs> chain concerns. But then you get back to it. It's like, okay, so far, again, it's only one quarter of 2020, and it, or excuse me, 2022, and it's only the, the first couple of weeks of earnings season here, but you have companies that are beating expectations. You have valuations that have come in significantly, even from just six months ago. So again, looking at the data, you know, if you're a long-term investor, I think you should be licking your chops right now. Exactly. Um so if you, if you didn't opinion. listen, to, if you didn't read any headlines and you just looked at the numbers and you looked at a few of these charts that we've showed on here, just from a pure analytical perspective, you would think now's, now's an okay time. Right. Things, yeah. things don't seem to be it's that bad right. right now. Yeah. So very interesting. That's a good chart. So the last, the last one I have here is, uh, about consumers that are unhappy, but still buying. And this is coming from Compound Advisors and Charlie Baleo. Uh, This is a piece of research from 423. It's a good chart, and it shows U.S. retail sales, and then it shows the U.S. index of consumer sentiment. Similar to what we were talking about earlier with the sentiment in the market being so negative. Um, And I'm going to read two lines. They're a little long, so bear with me, um, from from Charlie here. And, And the first one is, U.S. retail sales hit another high last month while consumer sentiment fell to its lowest level in over a decade. The translation, Americans are not happy about rising prices, but they're still spending money. (laughs) And the the chart speaks for itself. That's exactly what's going on. Uh, the, The second line here is, part of the rise in retail sales is simply due to higher prices as inflation adjusted sales peaked last April but real retail sales are still 15% higher than pre-COVID levels. So demand remains strong irrespective of inflation and is likely due to the strength of the consumer balance sheet, which you mentioned earlier in the podcast. Yeah. Um, So those two lines that I just read to you guys, the chart, it kind of speaks for itself. Um, But I, I don't think this is a bad thing. I think it just shows how strong the consumer is. We've all been impacted by 2020 in in one way or another but i think 
even now you still you still see such strength in the in the u.s consumer which is from a from a human point of view that's great to see right it's nice to see the economy things normalizing going out you know going to concerts things like that i mean people are still spending money on on goods people are still spending money on services um it's a good thing. Yeah, it is a good thing because consumption is what drives our economy, right? Yep. <laughs> and I think, Absolutely. you know, um, you know, people are, are really concerned about a recession, obviously. And, and just to remind people, a recession is two um, uh, consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth. Um, you know, something that would tell me we're getting closer is when we start to see retail sales start yeah. to drop off. And that's not it's not happening. If yet. the retail sales chart looked like the consumer sentiment <laughs> chart, that would be a bigger issue. I'd be a little more concerned, right? Because then we would go from a, a really inflationary environment, from what we're seeing, to like extreme deflationary, uh, right? Yeah. Where there's demand that dries up, supply chains are back to normal, and people are producing goods that no one's buying, and then you know the pendulum swings back to yeah. a, a massive deflationary environment, which is, is not a good thing. Yeah, that's the worst case scenario. Yeah, <laughs> and I could make the argument that that's worse than having inflation and what we're experiencing right now, because yeah. that, would be, that would be no good for, for the economy. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I agree with that wholeheartedly. Yep. So... Um, yeah, very interesting. So Charlie always puts out good stuff. Um, so thanks for sharing that. Absolutely. Um, moving on to the financial planning topic of the week. This was a blog post from Taylor Schulte on April 20th about several key revisions in the Secure Act 2.0 that was passed by the House of Representatives earlier this year. Um, that will affect retirement savers substantially if this gets passed by the Senate. But again, just to clarify, this bill has not been uh, voted on yet by the Senate, so this is not law. Um, but Taylor points out uh, just a few items that he thinks are going to be affecting uh, retirement savers in particular. Um, so again, I think there is a lot of bipartisan support for this, Nick. Mm -hmm. um, so this is kind of a add-on to the original SECURE Act that was passed in, in the December of 2019, I believe it was. Um, so this is a follow-up to that um, to help retirement savers out a little more. So the first thing is that the House uh, would like to see the age for required minimum distributions uh, rise again. So they're going to make another change to the RMD age. So the original Secure Act uh, in 2019 increased the RMD age from 70 and a half to 72. This bill would increase the age again, ultimately to 75. However, the increase will happen in phases. As the bill stands now, the RMD age would move to 73 in 2023 and then increase to age 74 in 2030, and then finally rise to age 75 in 2033. So as a reminder, required minimum distributions for right now for anyone that is 72 or older and they have a pre-tax retirement account, the government is going to make you take money out of that account every year so that they can start to get their tax dollars, mm -hmm. okay? Um, so again, the original age... Uh, prior to 2020 was 70 and a half. It's up to 72 now, but ultimately uh, they want to see that rise to age 75 
uh, by 2033. And this could be huge for people that live off of Social Security income or have pension income and don't necessarily need the money in their retirement accounts to create more taxable income for them. Um, so I think this is this is a positive thing that people could be looking forward to. I have a question for you. Do you think the, the reason that they're increasing it you know, 73 and 20, 23, 74 and 20, 30, 75 and 20, 33 is thinking about life expectancy yeah. increasing over time because of an increase in technology and healthcare and everything. Like I that. think that has a lot to do with it. Yeah. Um, because that makes sense. Yeah, it does. Because, you know, back even two or three decades ago, Nick, you know, when people retired, they had roughly, 20 years mm -hmm. to, to live and spend down their assets, maybe 25 if they were lucky. But now some people are faced with 30 or 40 years yeah. of early retirement, reti early retirement, early retirement, plus longer life expectancy. Yeah. If someone retires at 50 or 55. That's not good a 35, 40 years that you have. Right. So I think that they are making these adjustments based on people's longevity mm -hmm. and expectation to live more. Um, so it could interesting. be interesting to see, but I think that would uh, benefit a lot of people who don't necessarily have to take money from their mm -hmm. pre-tax retirement accounts. Um, number two is the RMD penalties are to be reduced. So this is a big one. The steepest oh, yeah. penalty that the IRS levies for anything is for missed required minimum distributions. And that penalty is 50%. So if your RMD was $100,000, and you didn't take any of it for last year, you would eventually have to take it. They will force you to take it, and you're going to pay a 50% penalty. So that's $50,000 penalty for not taking your RMD, right? Yikes. Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> a lot. So uh, under the SECURE Act 2.0, the penalty would be reduced to 25%, and if the mistake is corrected in a quote-unquote timely manner, it will be reduced further to 10%. So that's still yet to be determined on what's considered a timely, timely manner yeah. to the IRS and that someone who question. forgot their RMD. So that'll be interesting to see how that goes. Um, Catch-up contributions are also increasing. So under the current law, employees that are 50 years and older who participate in their 401k or 403b plan can contribute an additional $6,500 beyond the standard 20500 contribution for those under the age of 50. So this is going to remain, except for workers ages 62 to 64, those people, the, the catch-up amount is going to increase to $10,000 starting in 2024. So if you got started saving late in the game, which I know a lot of people are in that camp, mm -hmm. and you are making good money now and have the ability to contribute significantly more uh, than the current limits, uh, that ability is going to be there for people ages 62 to 64 starting in 2024. And my guess is that would be even more important for this next generation with with uh, student debt. Yeah. Think about that. A lot of the people with high student debt, they're going to be saving later on in their careers. Correct. Correct. Yeah. But there's a catch to this. Okay. So uh, catch up contributions will be subject to Roth treatment treatment. So all employer plan catch up contributions will be subject to the Roth treatment. And what that means is the extra contributions uh, won't offer the tax savings we're accustomed to because the contributions are going to be coming from after-tax pay. 
So this provision is one way uh, Congress is seeking to raise revenue to help offset the cost of the bill. So traditionally, when you're making pre-tax contributions to a 401k plan, Nick, you can deduct those contributions off of your income for that year to help reduce your taxable income. But these uh, catch-up contributions aren't going to be tax deductible, I don't Got think. It. So uh, that's going to be, you know, one of the gotchas because obviously there's no free lunch and somehow they're going to have to make up for these uh, lost tax payments, I guess, coming from the sure. retirement savings. So in your opinion, though, when I read this, it still seems like a net gain. Yeah, for, uh, I agree. Yeah, yeah. For, okay. for individuals, definitely. 100 okay. percent. Um, next is employer matching contributions can be Roth contributions. So under current law, all employer matching contributions must be pre-tax regardless of the funding choice of the employee. So if you're choosing to do uh, 10% into your Roth 401k, as of right now, your employer only matches on a pre-tax level. So say you're contributing 10%, your employer matches one for one up to 4% of your pay. They're doing 4% of your pay pre-tax. Mm -hmm. So that is going into your pre-tax 401k. And even though you're making Roth contributions, the employer match is still going to be traditional pre-tax contributions. Gotcha. Um, so this is going to be pretty big, I think, for a lot of people that want to juice up their Roth 401k and have that money grow completely tax free until retirement. Yeah, I think that's that's huge. Right. Yeah. So, you know, if this bill does pass, participants may be given the choice to receive their matching contributions on a Roth basis starting next year. Hmm. Um, but I think the kicker here, Nick, is is the way I read the bill Um it's going to be up to employers if they want to give that ability sure, to yeah. do Roth contributions because the employer gets a tax benefit from making pre-tax contributions to their absolutely their employees yeah. 401ks. So I think that is going to be an employer on employer basis. So we'll wait to see uh, on more verbiage from that. And last but not least, uh, there's going to be a creation of a retirement savings lost and found. There are many times where I've seen pipe or excuse me, people find old 401k plans, but this often requires a little bit of effort. And this could be a pain in the butt to do because I've gone through it with clients, mm -hmm. Nick. So under this law, the Department of Labor will create a new online database to help investors find old plans. The database is supposed to be set up within two years after this laws enacted. So um, I think this will be helpful for a lot of people because, you know, if you've worked at several employers throughout your career and you have yeah. 401ks or 403bs all over the place, yeah. it's hard 40 years later to go back and be like, okay, let's figure out where all this stuff is. Yeah. So it's kind of like an un unclaimed funds mm -hmm. that you can go and search for old deposits that you would have made. Uh, that are just sitting out there, but just for retirement accounts and for, for old 401k and 403b plans. So I think this will be helpful. And, um, you know, having people being able to consolidate their accounts all into one or just understand where all of their money is, if it's, you know, a, a situation where they just, you know, put in a percentage of their pay that they were contributing and didn't really pay attention to it. 
I know I've talked to a lot of people that said, you know, I don't really think I have any anything else. And then you dig a little deeper with them and find a statement here and there. And it's like, oh, let's contract this custodian to see if you have your 401k there. It can be significant. Yeah, yeah. it could be very significant. Yeah, so I think very uh, long overdue, very long overdue. Mm-hmm. So, um, again, this is going to take some time to get set up. Um, but overall, again, net positive, I think, for yeah. retirement savers. Yeah, I'm picturing just something, you know, like when you search in sec.gov, it's not the most beautiful database, but it's very functional. Right. It gets, what you, gets you what you need. Exactly. And so. with a couple of pieces of information, should be able to pull up a list of accounts that are associated yeah. with the last four of your social yeah. or your last name or your address or something like that. And I guess they'll probably just make it mandatory for all custodians to just report, hey, this account's just been sitting, right. quote unquote, inactive for X amount of months or whatever. Mm-hmm. That, that That's probably just going to be a mandatory thing. Yeah, I would imagine keep, it. Which is how they'll keep track of it. Right. Yeah, right. interesting. Exactly. So, um, again, I know we, we kind of touched about this stuff, and I think Matt talked about it several podcast episodes ago about some things in the Secure Act 2.0. Um, again, just want to point out that, that none of this stuff is enacted yet, um, but it, it does have bipartisan support, mm-hmm. it sounds like. So it's something that could be passed as is right now, or there could be revisions uh, to the Senate bill. So so as it is right now, we're cheering for this. <clears throat> I would say so. Yeah, right. I think that that's it's a it's a clear benefit for most people, yeah. I would say. Yeah. So um, anything else there, Nick, before we leave it here for the week no no that was that was great i enjoyed that um thank you as always for having me it's been yeah, fun. thanks for filling in so anytime uh let us know if you want to hear more of nick in the coming weeks and months of head and i'm sure he'll be filling in uh as matt and i uh, have other commitments throughout the weeks and months ahead so um just want to thank everybody again for listening to episode number 147 of the independent advisors podcast and we will be back with you next week for episode number 148. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. Also, check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. There you'll find links to every episode of the Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show, message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words questions and topics in the subject line to inquiries at jessupwealthmanagement.com. We'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties, which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor.